You're listening to A People's Anthology. Produced by Boston Review, this is a new podcast that highlights and explores radical texts from US history, with our first six episodes surfacing a few important documents related to the urban rebellions of the 1960s and 70s. This is episode two, on Jack Adele's 1967 essay, The July Rebellions in the Military State, introduced by Nikhil Pal Singh and read by Joshua Bennett. Jack Adele is probably one of the most important, if also unsung, figures in the background of the civil rights movement. He got his start in the National Maritime Union in the 1940s, One of the things he describes as having gotten radicalized when he was on the ships. And the NMU was a a pretty progressive left union. So Jack really got his education as a radical trade unionist in the 1940s. And that's really where he started. And when the left trade unions were expelled from the CIO in 1950, at the beginning of the Red Scare, Jack kind of went into the Communist Party and started underground organizing in Alabama and Louisiana. So he was organizing among sharecroppers and um, poor black service workers kind of across those states, and he had to do it all in secret because the Communist Party was outlawed at the time. So he was already kind of under surveillance and being tracked by law enforcement. This experience in early civil rights organizing in the South also leads Jack O'Dell to join up with Martin Luther King's SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in the 1960s. But after the FBI dug up dirt on O'Dell, he was under pressure to leave, essentially being red-baited out. These experiences with state surveillance agencies ultimately led Jack O'Dell to undergo what Nikhil describes as a transition from being an organizer to being an intellectual. And so he goes on to become the associate managing editor of the journal Freedom Ways, which is run by Esther Cooper Jackson, another black leftist. And Freedom Ways becomes an extremely important periodical documenting every year of the civil rights movement. So a lot of Jack's essays that he ended up writing first appeared in the journal Freedom Ways. And it's an amazing resource for people who want to kind of get a firsthand account of how movement history was being written at the time by participants and close observers. This is at a time when the civil rights movement is shifting. No longer do people believe that America's race problem is going to be resolved by simply overcoming legal Jim Crow in the South. Elsewhere across the country, de facto segregation had become a feature of black life, with poverty, substandard housing, and underemployment affecting the more urban North. So, although there are landmark pieces of legislation in 1963 and 64, the passing of the civil rights laws were limited to legal equality. They did not address wages, jobs, schools, poor housing, or police brutality. It was this contradiction that underpinned the uprisings of 1967 that started with the Grove Hall Rebellion in Boston. 1967 is the year in which all hell breaks loose, um, in which there's the beginning of a, a series of urban uprisings across the United States. What the police and the kind of security establishment feared was going to be a long, hot summer. Um, and of course, those uprisings continue in 68. 
particularly in the aftermath of King's assassination and Bobby Kennedy's assassination. So there's a there's a rising level of unrest, but the unrest is building throughout the decade. And it's building throughout the decade for a number of different reasons. Um, I mean, you see urban uprisings in in Harlem, in, in a number of uh, other cities in the early part of the 1960s. And of course, you have the very important uprising in Los Angeles in 1965, the Watts riot, which is which is truly devastating. And part of what those urban uprisings are indicating is that the race problem, the problem of racism, of inequality, of unemployment, of segregation, of oppression, of violence against black people, particularly on the part of the police, is not just a Southern problem. It's these events that Jack Adel is observing and that lead him to write the essay, The July Rebellions in the Military State, that same year. It really is one of his most harsh and confrontational essays. He says, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here, he says, policemanship as a style of government is no longer confined to a Southern way of life. So when he says that, one of the things he's he's sort of marking there is, is that we've tended to think up to that point in time that the struggle against racism, racial inequality, white supremacy is primarily a Southern question or a regional question confined to one part of the country. And he's saying, no, 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 no. What we're seeing is is that racism and white supremacy have actually shaped the nation as a whole. They're not regionally discrete. Not only have they shaped the nation as a whole, but they have a a wider global significance. For example, it was the height of the Vietnam War. Jack was very clearly understanding the relationship between what I've called in my work the inner war and the outer war, that the Vietnam War and the oppressive conditions under which African-Americans suffered in American cities were connected. You know, and James Baldwin wrote a very famous essay around that time where he refers to Harlem as occupied territory. So this is part of a kind of black vernacular critical discourse that's kind of trying to say, you know, our conditions inside the United States and the kind of oppression we suffer under are not unlike the conditions that exist in areas of the world that have been struggling against colonialism. And there's one line in the essay that sums this up well. He says, the road which leads from the Indian massacres of the last century to the Pentagon and another from the oppressive slave plantation to the ghetto are the major conjunctive highways running through the very center of American life and history. It's a really amazing historical framing of um, state violence against people of color, particularly the settler colonial project against indigenous people and the project of forced migration and stolen labor that defines enslavement of Africans. The essay ends with a call for a new, quote, resistance movement to ensure the end of the tyranny of racism militarism. And Jack O'Dell believed that the rebellions were on their way to achieving this. But if you just take the attitude that this needs to be put down, this needs to be repressed, this needs to be crushed, you know, you're basically just kind of aligning yourselves with the forces of reaction. And I think he was very clear about that. And I think that's a very important part of this essay. Because I don't think you, you find in this essay a kind of a romanticization of the riots. 
I mean, he calls them rebellions, and it's right to call them rebellions. But he's not suggesting that in and of itself, that's something that should be celebrated. He's just saying that you actually have to understand something of those conditions and then what they suggest for the balance of forces and what we actually have to do going forward. That's a very, very different kind of approach. So he's identifying how the Negro leaders of the moment are rushing to distance themselves from these events. And he's sort of saying, no, we can't just distance ourselves from these events. This is actually our constituency. <laughs> you know, these are actually the people that we actually have to think about in terms of trying to recognize their needs and aspirations in this moment. This essay is just one of many that Jack O'Dell, born Hunter Pitts O'Dell in 1923, left behind when he passed away last month. It's amazing, given that long career, that he's not a better-known figure, particularly since he left a lot of writing behind as well that we now have. Um, but one of the reasons he's still not better known is that that anti-communist hangover still kind of lives on. A figure like him would, under other circumstances, be very much at the center of the pantheon of the history of the movement that we now know. But he was explicitly kind of pushed out of that frame, in part because he represented such a, such a radical sense of, of what needed to be done. The July Rebellions in the Military State. There is a currently popular American folk song whose lyrics speak philosophically concerning time and the turn of the seasons. What was earlier in this decade described as our summers of discontent now turns into seasons of growing popular revolt against the conditions of life in America. The war in Vietnam continues, as does the determined popular resistance to the war by large sections of the American people. The military establishment grows more brutal and arrogant at home and abroad. The freedom consciousness of the black ghettos becomes more articulate in act as well as in word, as one of the major institutions of racism, the ghetto condition, comes under assault. This is part of the cutting edge of an emerging new resistance movement. The month of July proved to be the premier month as 37 cities stretching across the continent from East Harlem to San Bernardino, California, and as far south as Riviera Beach, Florida, were shaken by revolts of varying magnitude, large and small. These events call attention in a dramatic way to the fact that, in the midst of its much-boasted affluence, the self-styled great society, like its predecessors, Rome and the Third Reich, has fallen upon bad times. The defenders of the ancient regime respond with characteristic venom. Get those niggers, get those niggers. The language of insult even comes from the lips of the Texan who has been called America's accidental president as he describes the leaders of the ghetto revolts. His audience is a convention of chiefs of police and he is asking for support for his safe streets legislation. The language of insult is accompanied by the language of confusion, as the American people are given a definition of these events in the ghetto as riots. This is the term repeated over and over again by the news media and the most prominent leaders of white American opinion. For all practical purposes, to understand these events and what they mean, it is necessary to clear up the problem of definitions. This is particularly necessary because language is used by the oppressor, often very effectively, to keep freedom fighters on the defensive. 
American society has a long history of charging its black victims with guilt by cleverly using the language as a weapon. In this, as in so many other ways, the U.S. shows how very much it is a part of the Western world. When one reads the history of the Negro people in the U.S., especially the long slavery period, one reads of Nat Turner's rebellion or of Denmark Vesey's revolt and of the more than 200 other slave revolts. These were violent efforts by men, individually or collectively, to throw off the chains of slavery exploitation. And if, in the course of events, they set fire to a plantation or took some food from the slaveholder's warehouse, freedom-loving mankind the world over hailed this as quite naturally in the spirit of liberty. Only the slave masters and their allies regarded such events as riots and the men struggling to throw off the yoke of slavery as hoodlums. More than a century before these freedom revolts by African slaves under the rule of the American Republic, a series of similar events had shaken British rule in the colony of Virginia. In 1676, the governor's plantation was stripped of its crops and domestic animals, and a militia was organized among the planters, farmers, and white indentured servants to back up their demands for lower taxes and an end to corruption and favoritism in the government. This was known as Bacon's Rebellion, named after Nathaniel Bacon, its leader, who died in jail, while 29 of his compatriots were hanged by the British authorities and dozens of others jailed and fined. The royal commission appointed by the crown to investigate these disturbances was sharply divided in its opinion between those who argued that the unrest is just the work of a few rabble who could be put down by a military force of 200 men and the more conciliatory commissioners who contended the unrest is widespread because of real grievances which should be investigated. Each of these events in its own time setting was a landmark in the development of greater political consciousness among the aggrieved population. In the slavery period of our American experience, the main institution of confinement is the plantation. In the post-slavery period, especially since the First World War, the main institution of confinement for the black population in the United States is the ghetto. The Negro ghetto has been described often and elaborately. It is an enclave within the larger American urban setting whose inhabitants pay high rents for slum houses or buy secondhand houses at inflated real estate prices, an area of rundown schools, overcrowded and poorly staffed, with a curriculum which is designed to give the child an inferior education and consequently handicap him in the competition for college or a good job later in life. The ghetto family pays marked up prices for poor quality food and other merchandise. With the weighted scale in the meat market and the padded credit accounts in the furniture store, everyday forms of robbery. It is a population preyed upon by petty hustlers and charlatans and a variety of other social parasites who wouldn't be allowed to operate in other communities. It is a population occupied by a police force acting as overseers on this urban plantation. By way of definition, the functional role of the ghetto as an institutionalized form of racism is to facilitate the special exploitation of the black population through the mechanisms we have described as such, the ghetto is merely an updated, modified version of the 19th century slave quarters in the American system of exploitation. And the revolts against the conditions in the ghetto today are linked by history to the revolts against slavery in the past. Such terms as riots and hoodlums have no place in any honest, objective appraisal of these events. 
the central continuing fact of American economic and social history over the past three and a half centuries is the special exploitation and robbery of the Negro community. As a corollary to this reality, the central theme in the life and history of the Afro-American population is one continuous struggle to free itself from this agonizing situation. The recent rebellions in Newark, Detroit, and slave revolts elsewhere over the past four years are but the latest examples highlighting this truth. No useful purpose is served by Negro civil rights leaders straining to disassociate themselves from the forces of the ghetto rebellion. Whitney Young's cautious statement that the vast majority of Negroes are exercising patience, restraint, and loyalty is as irrelevant to understanding the freedom movement today as it is reassuring to the white power structure for whom such statements are obviously intended. What is new and therefore very relevant is the fact of a growing number of youthful black men and women who are no longer patient but fed up, no longer restrained but ready to go for broke and are indeed loyal to themselves and their people because they are convinced the country is not loyal to them. They didn't create the ghetto slums, but as the victims they are making the ghettos of America the new battleground. They are confronting the whole fabric of exploitation in the ghetto at the level that they see it functioning. The absentee-owned stores and the property of the absentee slumlords and the police occupation force representing the state power of the colonial regime. One does not have to be a diehard advocate of violence or anarchy to recognize the validity of the social rebellion by the oppressed, which takes a violent form. Riots have little to do with freedom. Revolts or rebellions against oppression have everything to do with freedom. In taking into account the significance of these events, one would be remiss not to recognize there was an element of rioting in this whole picture. The trigger-happy, panicky, ruthless conduct of many police and National Guardsmen was on the scale of a riot. Apartment buildings suspected of hiding snipers were sprayed with machine gun bullets. In some areas, a point was made of systemically damaging Negro-owned businesses which had been left untouched by the uprising. In Plainfield, the occupation troops conducted Nazi-type house-to-house raids upon the ghetto neighborhoods under the pretense of looking for guns. The police, state troopers, and National Guardsmen literally rioted as they occupied the ghettos last summer, just as they had done in Watts, San Francisco, and elsewhere since 1964. The long list of civilian dead and injured in the ghetto is testimony to this fact. This riotous conduct by the armed forces of the state directed against the local civilian population is the classic style of colonial rule and is today the most overt expression of the growing fascist pattern developing in the United States. Despite certain concessions to civil rights and a number of important court decisions favorable to the defense of civil liberties, militarism and the military presence are rapidly becoming the main features of governmental power in American life. Whether expressed in the form of armed tactical units occupying the ghettos, a police mobilization to brutalize peace marchers, or a massive military buildup in Southeast Asia, the economic, political, and psychological ascendancy of militarism is a prime factor shaping the character of national life in our country today. As in 1852, once again, it is true today. The line between Mississippi and Michigan between Birmingham and Newark is rapidly being obliterated as the rise of the military establishment takes on a special meaning. Policemanship as a style of government is no longer confined to the Southern way of life, but is now becoming institutionalized on a national level. And the line between foreign and domestic policy is fading out as well as militarism and the military presence become 
coextensive with the Star Spangled Banner. The road which leads from the Indian massacres of the last century to the Pentagon and another from the oppressive slave plantation to the ghetto are major conjunctive highways running through the very center of US life and history. In turn, they shape the mainstream contours of American national development. The idea that there is no warlike tradition of militarism in America is, of course, one of the most cherished national myths. Popular belief in this mythology serves as an opiate and a blinder for US colonialism past and present. There is, indeed, no goose-stepping tradition of the Hitler-Germany kind in America, but that is a matter of national style. In the present period in the evolution of the American social system, the structured military establishment with its staggering financial resources in the public treasury, its ideology of barbarism, and its manipulative control over the lives of millions, especially the youth, represents the main social cancer in the body politic of the nation. It is an historically evolved deformity which at once aggravates and brings into visible focus all the other social contradictions underlying the American way of life. The contradiction between squandered wealth and dehumanizing poverty, the contradiction between a congenital racism and feeble efforts at becoming a democracy, the contradiction between a tradition of civilian controlled government, academic and other institutions on the one hand, and the institutional power requirements of the military industrial complex on the other, all of these are exacerbated by the escalation of the power of the military in the affairs of the nation today. Any leadership, whether in civil rights, peace, labor, church, or the academic community, which ignores this reality and the dangers inherent in it is a leadership which is already obsolete. The most hopeful development on the national scene in this period is the fact that this reality is being confronted by a growing mood of resistance among large sections of American people. The revolts against the ghetto condition are but what form of this. The peace coalition represented by the national mobilization to end the war in Vietnam, with its new emphasis on direct action, expressed in the movement slogan, confront the war makers, is another form, as are the college and university campus demonstrations against military recruitment and military research. In addition, there is the growing subculture which has been called hippies. Despite certain hangups which limit the effectiveness of their example, the hippies are engaged in a creative irreverent assault upon all the, of the hypocritical, moribund, anti-human values and mores of the present social order. Therefore, they too are an important component of the emerging new resistance movement. This movement, for an end to the tyranny of racism, militarism, and for a revolution in American values, is a vital stream of humanist consciousness in American life, it also marks a nodal point, a qualitative change in the deepening sense of alienation felt by a cross-section of the American people. Cutting across racial, class, and ethnic lines, this sense of alienation from the present governmental structure is a rapidly growing phenomenon embracing a few millions. The resistance movement is the organized expression of this much larger phenomenon and is just in the beginning stages of its development. Yet the nationwide visibility it is getting as a result of its varied activities is also beginning to awaken the ranks of organized labor. The basic objective of the resistance movement is to mobilize and build a massive organized grassroots opposition among the American people. The program is to rescue human life from this juggernaut and redirect the nation to a course of genuine social progress. The immediate focus is upon ending the military intervention in Vietnam. Vietnam, more than any other issue in this century, symbolizes the dangerous shift of decision-making, institutional power into the hands of the military. 
It also epitomizes in such acts as the burning of villages, the bombing of schools and hospitals, the mutilation of bodies for souvenirs, etc., the continued erosion and dehumanization of the American national character. For all freedom fighters, therefore, the watchword is resistance, unyielding resistance, and the building of a movement for all seasons. Whether in the streets of the ghettos, on the college campuses, at the Pentagon or elsewhere, the movement of confrontation resistance is the vehicle for asserting a new social morality in America, a civilized morality which asserts the primary value of human life and its right to survive as the basis for liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You've been listening to episode two of A People's Anthology, featuring excerpts from Jack O'Dell's essay, The July Rebellions and the Military State. The text was read by Joshua Bennett, a poet and professor at Dartmouth College. It was introduced by Nikhil Palsingh, professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU. Our theme music is by Marissa Anderson. The People's Anthology is a production from Boston Review, a political and literary magazine, both online and in print, since 1975. Visit us at bostonreview.net.